Father, we do thank you again uh, for bringing us here together. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your constant care over your people. Thank you for providing a time in our culture where we can step back and, and devote time toward what you've commanded us and called us to do, which is to be thankful. I pray, Father, that uh, conversations that happened over the dinner table would continue. I pray that they were fruitful about Christ and the, the reason that we have to be thankful, and that His work is finished, and that in Him we are made right with You, and in Him there is peace, not peace in our circumstances, but peace between God and man. And as we enter into the season of the Incarnation, where the unthinkable happened, God being enclosed in the flesh as a baby born to die to reconcile men to you. I pray that our thankfulness continues to grow as we ponder and think through the mystery that is the Incarnation, celebrate with joy what you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray a little bit more of that happens this morning as we take up a second um, Reformation doctrine this morning by grace alone. I pray that you give us wisdom and insight and help our conversation to be fruitful, that we would love Christ more, prize Him more as we think through this great gift you've given us in grace. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, we uh, had, during Reformation weekend, um, taken up the topic of sola scriptura, and thought it was a good idea to kind of, maybe at the end of the month, pick up one of the Reformation doctrines, just kind of go over it, take a break from Acts for, for a little bit, and just go over uh, what these doctrines mean, what was the issue during the Protestant Reformation, why was it significant, and what does it mean today. So we're going to continue our overview of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And when we looked at sola scriptura, or scripture alone, we saw that, Roman Catholics believed in the 16th century, and Rome teaches today that justification, which is being made right with God, justification is by grace, through faith, because of Christ. And a Roman Catholic will affirm that till they're blue in the face. And they'll also confirm that Scripture is inspired, infallible, and a rule for faith and practice. And did you notice I used the article A rather than the? And that's the issue. In each of these issues, in each of these topics, yes, it's there. It's just not enough. It's insufficient. Something else has to be added. And so what Rome does not believe is that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Rome taught then and teaches today that justification is by grace alone plus merit, whether it's your own or, or some other saints or both. Uh, it's through faith plus works, and we'll see that uh, in, in, at the end of December. Uh, because of Christ plus the sinner's contribution of inherent righteousness. All of these articles that the Protestants were arguing for, Rome responded with, it's not enough. And that's why it became a, a conflict. So in the end response, the reformers had five main slogans, all using the word sola. 
which means the Protestants were singing people. They, anyway, no. <laughs> they, had, they had some form of sola, uh, but it all means alone. It's not simply enough to cry faith or grace or Christ or the glory of God. With Scripture alone as the sure foundation, the Reformers confirmed that justification is by grace alone, received through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And so really, as we're discussing the Reformation and the doctrines that came out of that, we're talking about the restoration of the gospel. How are men made right with God? And the core issue in the gospel is not... And I had a, a wonderful opportunity to have a little conversation again on Facebook, which is always profitable, and I should learn, but I did it anyway. It's like honey to a bee. There it is. So uh, I, I had, a, I had a, a, a conversation. It was really a sweet conversation, but, but it was sweet. Um, but uh, like honey, yes. But, but the, the core issue was, and we were talking about Joel Osteen and the gospel, which is, again, it's... it's Roam the other way, you know. Um, but it still comes down to, and all other religions come down to, are we made right with God through pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, human achievement, or has something significant happened where God has divinely accomplished what we could not? That, and that's the difference. Christianity is unique in that it's about God's divine accomplishment of um, righteousness through Christ. And so we have the five solas. Now Philip has argued for a sixth. We've gone to lunch a few times over this. Uh, he's argued for a sixth. He, he also says that there should have been another sola, sola ecclesia. And I see his argument. Uh, you know, that, 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 that we're saved individually, but we're saved into a body, right? And, and to become a member of uh, to, to be saved is to become a member of the body of Christ and you're not saved apart from the body of Christ. I, I agree with that. Uh, you can't be a Christian and not be part of the church. And his pushback is really the individualism that we have in our culture. Me, Jesus, the Bible under a tree stuff. And there's truth, and I understand his point there. And he's, I don't like that term. <laughs> because uh, sola ecclesia is what Rome argued. And they elevated that above everything else. Which church? Which church? And, and what does that mean? How much of church alone do, does that go? And so they had pushed that way, well beyond where your salvation depended upon the means of obtaining merit afforded to you by the clergy. The priest would dispense out your righteousness to you through Before certain seconds. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Philip doesn't mean that. Yeah. I mean, that, but, but that's why I don't like the term. I, I, I appreciate the principle and agree with the principle, but the term, I think, pulls some of that in. So what is it that Rome believes? Let's, let's set up, the, let's set up the, the problem. Medieval Catholics uh, view the way we are made right with God like this. Oh, oh that's okay. It's, uh, we, did, we need a neon sign. Welcome. All right. Um, can you all hand, uh, hand out? And pins. and pins. So, medieval Catholics viewed the way we are made right with God like this. At baptism, a person received the grace of baptism, and, and at that point, a person is restored to a state 
of innocence, right? They, they held to Augustine's doctrine of original sin. We're all born in Adam. That's fine. But baptism cleanses you of that and you're returned to a state of innocence. And when a man sins after that, he's like a leaky bathtub. He, he loses some of that grace. Uh, it, it's... it's a consistent thing every time you sin more is lost over a period of time that's the belief of, of medieval Roman Catholicism and, and to this day it's still their belief the more, a mortal sin like adultery or murder or something like that a mortal sin because they, they you know they they graded them there's a mortal sin and there's a venial sin and some are some sins are worse than others and they I guess they blew a hole in the bottom of your bathtub if you're going to look at it that way. But So if a mortal sin, all of the grace received at baptism is lost and you are no longer justified before God. That's a mortal sin. Um, a person could restore themselves to a state of grace by doing what's called penance. You've heard of the sacrament of penance, I'm sure. If you've ever watched a horror movie, they're usually in there somewhere. Um, penance was and is a sacrament in that it was the vehicle which God's grace was received. And it was received all over again. They had them do things to earn their, that state of grace back. Um, and penance was different than indulgences. An indulgence, uh, penance had to do with justification, removing the penalty of eternal punishment. Uh, an indulgence had to do with uh, removing the penalty of temporal <coughs> sin. So they separate out the consequences of your sin. Um, and it's hard for us as Protestants to get this. But there's a difference between eternal punishment and temporal punishment in the Catholic theology. We don't separate that. That's the same thing in our theology and in our understanding of grace. God does chasten us temporarily for our sin, but all of that's resolved in Christ. And Protestant understanding of things. He never loves us more or less than the day we first believed. That, that's a Protestant notion. That's not a Catholic notion. Um, Catholics looked at it like each sin had to be paid for eternally and temporally. Baptism and penance remove the eternal punishment, but purgatory removes the temporal punishment of sin. And think about that. To be absent from the body might mean to be present with the Lord as punisher for temporal sin. What a, what a blow that would be, you know. Even though you're eternally justified through the act of baptism in Catholic theology, um, just, to, just to give you a sense of this, and, I, and I, I know I'm going along on this point, but here's how it's addressed in the Catholic Encyclopedia, which is online, by the way, and it's very interesting. In the sacrament of baptism, not only is the guilt of sin remitted, but also all the penalties attached to sin. In the sacrament of penance, the guilt of sin is removed, and with it, the eternal punishment due to mortal sin. But there still remains the temporal punishment required by divine justice. And this requirement must be fulfilled either in the present life or in the world to come, i.e. in purgatory. An indulgence offers the penitent sinner the means of discharging this debt, this temporal punishment debt, during his life on earth. And that's through the online uh, Catholic Encyclopedia. Can you see that, the salvation, that salvation for the Roman Catholic was based upon a cooperation of 
infused grace at baptism plus their meritorious works or somebody's meritorious works. I mean, do you see how that system is there? If you're a leaky bathtub and all your grace is leaking out, you have to keep filling the tank somehow. And where do you get the resources to fill the tank? Well, the church gives it to you. It's a bank. And you can make a withdrawal, you know, every time you do penance or an indulgence or whatever, either for eternal or, or temporary, uh, temporal sin. So Martin Luther's argument here was, if the Pope loved us, he'd open the bank. <laughs> Why dispense it out coin by coin? Why wouldn't he bust it open so that all might receive the merits needed for grace? Well, the answer is clear. It's for control, right? I can, I can control uh, politics. I can control masses of people if I say I'm withholding from you the dispensation of merit in your community because you did this. And that happened a lot. Um, whenever they had priests before the Reformation, when they had priests who would who would uh, say, this isn't right, we're challenging this, they would say, if you harbor this man and don't deliver him up, we're withholding from you merit. And it was an effective thing, because if you grew up believing that that's how you were made right with God is what the church dispensed through sola ecclesia, then you, there's this pool. I've got to do it or else I'm going to go to hell or spend a really long time in purgatory, which is in effect, in my mind, the same thing. Um, so, if, um, if, if this whole idea uh, is based upon a cooperation of infused grace and meritorious works, we, we, we see in Catholic theology that we're sick in sin, sick in sin, I have a head cold of sin, and if I cooperate with the grace of God as, as dispensed by the church, I can be saved ultimately. So there's massive control there. Um, it's the same error that we saw with Sola Scriptura. There's grace, sure, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. All right. And to this, the Roman reformers responded, Sola Gratia, because Latin is cool. Grace alone. Grace, and, and, and the reformers argued that grace was not infu an infused substance. It was not something that... that you know, the, the believer was poured, it wasn't something poured into the believer that they could lose. Um, but a divine declaration in which to be thankful and rejoice. The grace of God cannot cooperate with a sinner's will because there's nothing there with which to cooperate. In Adam all died. So the grace of God has to be an invasive thing. It has to be a transformative thing. Um, grace is and must be an act upon the human solely by God. Where would they get such a strange notion? I mean, can you think of any other religious system that would put forward the notion that right standing with the deity does not depend on human achievement but divine accomplishment? What other, what other religious system has that? I know not one. And to prejudice the argument a little bit, they, they get it from the Bible. For example, Titus 3.5, he says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what is regeneration? We'll do a little catechism Q&A. What is regeneration? We use that big word. What does that mean? Renewed, okay. Born again. Born again. There's a good buzz, buzz term there, yeah? Generation. Generation, yes. Okay. Regeneration. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Jesus. Always a good answer. It means remade. Remade. Regenerate. Yeah. The uh, regeneration has been defined, I think it's a good definition, is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. What analogies? We talk about We talk about analogies that scripture gives for regeneration. What what kind of analogies can you think of? How does he talk about Well, one has already been said, born again. We were dead in our trespasses. We're dead, so it's new life. So re- there's 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 born again, there's resurrection, new life. What else? Not a clean slate. It's a terrible analogy. <laughs> like, oh, it doesn't try again. Okay, maybe that's what it's not. What are some analogies the scripture actually uses? <laughs> um, you've been given a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone. Okay, so again, so it's a, it's a well, another term for that Paul uses is new creation, right? Yeah. Um, so it's, the, the, and there's three, really. I mean, I, I have, I've searched and I can't find any others. Uh, it's new birth, new life, new creation. Now, here's a question to ponder late at night when you can't sleep. Can in, either, can in any of the situations, the, 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 the thing that's been given new birth, the thing that's been given new life, the thing that has been made new as a creation, can it do that for itself? Unless you're Jesus. Unless you're Jesus. Again, not eternal in that sense. Can we, can a baby say, I want to be conceived, I want to be conceived, I want to be conceived. Is that, is that, that's something that is actually done to the child, right? That, that's, that happens. We'll talk about that maybe some of the time. But if, if we need to, ask your mom and dad. Great Thanksgiving conversation. Um, Mom! Um, So there's that new life. Lazarus in the tomb. Awful, I know. Lazarus in the tomb. He's sitting there on the slab. Four days. He stinketh. And he's on the slab going, I want to be made alive. I want to be made alive. Is Is that going on? No. Dead means dead. Right? Uh, New creation. In, in, in the vast emptiness of space, the Holy Spirit's hovering, and He hears an echo off in the distance of yet unformed substance and matter. I want to be made. I want to be made. I want to be... Is that what's going on? No. It has to be formed by a creative act by God. And that is what you see consistently throughout Scripture. It is an action of God. Um, I gave you some, some sites there, John 3, 3 through 6, 1 Peter 1, 3, 1 Peter 1, 23, and, and so on. Why do you think, why does Scripture describe it this way? 
Why does it describe it this way? As new birth, new life, new creation. What? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so we're completely made new. We're not part of the life of sin that we were in before. And, the, and some of the biblical terminology for the life of sin that we were in before is born in Adam. Right? You see that in, in Paul's writings. Born in Adam. In Adam all die. Um, uh, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. I mean, we're all lumped in, fallen, sinful. And, and in Romans 8, 7, Paul says that the, the mind of the flesh, the unregenerated mind, is at enmity with God. He will not obey the law of God. Indeed, he cannot. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ability thing. There's right there. He cannot. Um, it's an ability thing. I can't do it. I'm not... Uh, the, what's the analogy that, that I hear? And, and the reason I bring this up is because some of this stuff... This Catholics, you're sick. You know? You're just... It's a, it's a sinful head cold. Reach out, take the medicine of Jesus twice daily and you'll be infused with grace. That idea has crept into Protestantism and, and we see that in uh, what, what are known as Arminian, Arminianism. It's a step back toward that. We're dead. But God, being rich in mercy, showed us Christ, made us alive together with Him by grace You've been saved, is the way Paul talks about it in Ephesians. We're born dead in Adam. Our minds cannot submit to the God's law, but are hostile to, 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 to God. Ty uh, said it before, Ezekiel describes our hearts as stony, being made in, 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 in back into flesh, or being made into flesh. Jeremiah 17.9 says, Our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And yet the culture says, in every Disney movie... Follow your heart. Straight to hell. Deceptive. It, that's our heart is, at, is an enemy, a rebel against God. And unless God moved, I would not have come to trust Christ. Unless God moves, those I know who are currently hostile to God will not come. And so there's two ideas at work here. And the big $10 words here are monergism and synergism. And this is a big debate during the Reformation. A book that came out of this was written by Martin Luther, and I highly recommend it, not only for the theological value, but just the sheer brilliance of the snark. <laughs> it, Bondage of the Will is some of the best one-liners. I mean, it's just great stuff. Um, not that we should emulate that, be kind. Be, Luther, not, he had a lot of sanctification that needed to happen in that area. <laughs> But it's brilliant, witty stuff, and, and you get a flavor for the type of debate that they had back then between Luther and Erasmus uh, on that. So monergism, let me just define that uh, for us. Uh, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit is the only efficient agent in regeneration. That the human will possesses no inclination to holiness. We're not sick, we're dead. No inclination to holiness until regenerated, and therefore cannot cooperate in regeneration. The idea is regeneration precedes faith. I'm not going to believe unless I have a heart to do it. That's the idea. 
Okay. The other is synergism. That is the doctrine that there are two efficient agents, effective agents in regeneration. Namely, the human will and the divine spirit, which, in the strict sense of the term, cooperate. This theory accordingly holds that the soul has not lost in the fall all inclination toward holiness, not nor all power to seek for it under the influence of ordinary motives. In the synergistic mindset, faith precedes regeneration. I believe and then I made new. I believe and then I made new. I would submit that that's illogical. And we're just going to leave it there. Martin Luther. Just a few quotes from Luther and Calvin just to give you a sense of the feel of this. Free will without God's grace is not free will at all, but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil since it cannot turn itself good. Again, Martin Luther, uh, Bondage of the Will. Let all the, quote, free will in the world do all it can with all its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. Calvin says it like this. The Word of God is like the sun shining upon all those to whom it is proclaimed but with no effect among the blind. Now all of us are blind by nature in this respect. Accordingly, it cannot penetrate into our minds unless the Spirit, as the inner teacher, through His illumination makes entry for it. He also said, How can it be said that the weakness of the human will is aided so as to enable it to aspire effectually to the choice of good, when the fact is that it must be wholly transformed and renewed? Finally, with Calvin, the grace of God has no charms for men till the Holy Spirit gives them a taste for it. I love that last one. The grace of God has no charms for men till the Holy Spirit gives them a taste for it. All right. So grace gets us to Christ. God's active work opens the eyes of the blind and, and we see the beauty of Jesus in, in turn. Um, that was the argument. That was the position of the Protestant reformers to a man, basically. The, the step back toward Rome didn't happen until the second generation, but the first generation, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, those guys were very much in the camp of grace precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. Um, and it doesn't stop there. Not only is God's initial and unilateral act of regeneration necessary, but God's grace working in us is necessary for our sanctification. We're made right with God. He sees us as righteous, and yet we're still sinners, right? We still sin. The heart is made new. We want to please Jesus. We want to look like Him, but we're still in this body of death, Paul calls it. We need grace there too, and it's sufficient there too. So that kind of deals with the idea of grace 
taking care of eternal punishment. And here we're looking at grace taking care of temporal punishment for the believer as we're struggling through uh, striving after holiness. The Reformers believed that Scripture taught that salvation was God's work start to finish. Grace did not leak out. And you can see where they got it from verses, um, verses like this. Uh, Romans 8. I mean, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also, there it is, predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So uh, Zwingli would say this, the Christian delivered from the law depends entirely on Jesus Christ. Christ is his reason, his counsel, his righteousness, and his whole salvation. One of the things that really um, caused me to struggle, uh, well, let me just put it this way. When, when, when Tammy met me uh, many moons ago, uh, 20, 21 moons ago, actually, um, she, not moons. <laughs> it's, it's really, it's really been a quick relationship with us. Um, like, 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 twenty-one years ago. Uh, I, I, yeah, kids. No, it didn't. It wasn't a new harmony thing at all. Um, so, so, I was struggling with coming out of. I, I had grown up in a charismatic background, kind of a loosey goosey kind of thing, and no basis for what I believed. So I hit college with no basis for what I believed and then go into liberal religious classes and those kinds of things and just I cratered. A lot I got, you know, and stuff going at home, I got bitter, where's God? What's this? And it's his fault and you're all a bunch of hypocrites anyway. It's just a little progression of into um, a bunch of self-pity. And so I, I just had rejected and and lost my mind. And so when I was starting to come out of that fog, I had a really uh, intense battle with, have I gone too far? Is there grace still for me? Has it all leaked out? Right? Am I the big bathtub with a hole blown in the bottom? And it was a massive struggle for me because I grew up, and I don't know where I got this. I don't remember a specific teaching on it, but I, I, I had this uh, idea in my head that you could lose your salvation. That God may have you in His hand, but you could jump out. Yep. Is the way it was described to me. Because he's a gentleman. Yes, he's a gentleman. <laughs> he's not a king. <laughs> he hasn't made a claim, and he hasn't put a flag in the soil. He's a gentleman, because kings let their stuff go without a battle. Um, so, I, I, I come to this point of, how, how do I know I can do this? How do I know I can trust this? Because what if I sin again? I'm just going to be back in the same place. And I don't, and there's just massive wrestling with this. One of the things that absolutely, um, I, 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 I don't know that I, well, maybe I'm not overstating it, rescued me is, is, the, is, is I'm reading through Scripture and I'm, I'm seeing that there is God's intentional action to bring his children to him and that it's because of what he's done that he keeps us kept and that if it's up to me to to reach out and grab the lifeline 
I could easily let it go, and I will. <laughs> I will. And so if it's up to me to save myself and reach out and grab grace, it's certainly going to be my boneheadedness that lets it go whenever I see something shiny, right? So the, the thing that... I, there's an analogy out there about, you know, you're out in the ocean and somebody throws you the life you know, uh, preserver or whatever, and you've got to swim to it or get it or whatever to be saved. That's not what I saw in Scripture as I was reading through. I'm dead at the bottom of the sea. I'm a corpse at the bottom of the sea. Christ dives in and breathes life into me and brings me to the surface. That's the picture that we get from the New Testament. Because it's His work, because it's what He's done, I can trust Him even as I wrestle through my own prevailing, sometimes, sin. Right? Yeah? One of the best arguments for monergism that I've seen in Scripture, I mean, aside from the analogies, of course, is uh, the fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. You'll love joy, peace, patience. If you get to faithfulness, the Greek word is, is actually faith. Mm -hmm. So the fruit of the Spirit, we have the Spirit. The effect of the Spirit is that fruit. And one of those is faith. And it's faith in Jesus. And, and it's faith that continues past the point of conversion. It continues that we're constantly trusting in Him as being greater than our sin. Um, yeah. So if this is true, if it's by grace alone that we're saved, and it's by grace from start to finish that we're saved and sanctified, how do we reflect that? I think that's a great answer. What does that look like? Jesus. Jesus. Always, yeah. There's. Well, we don't cross people off our list because it's not up to them and their good or bad works. It's God that reaches into any heart and changes it. Um, at what point in our spiritual state were we given grace? When we were dead? When we were hostile to God? How do we reflect that? If we're going to image Christ, shouldn't we reflect it that way? That we're able to maintain a little bit of, but for the grace of God, there I go I. I want to I reconcile with my brother. I want to, I want to be um, intentional about bringing the gospel to someone who... Look at what the apostles did with the Sanhedrin. They willingly went with them to the council, got beat for it. Why? To bring them Christ. To preach the resurrection and reconciliation through Christ. While they were yet hostile to God. We're enemies of God, at war with God. And in fact, Romans says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If this is God's gift to us, this transformation, how do we reflect it around us? Proverbs 4.18 says this, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Uh, one of my favorite Puritan books is The Bruised Reed, and I highly recommend it to you. Uh, Richard Sibbs says this, It would be a good contest among Christians. One to labor to give no offense and the other to labor 
to take none. The best men are severe to themselves, tender over others. And I need to hear that every day. Um, all right. We'll end on this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. My, uh, one of my favorite verses, passages on this topic. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What a great verse. All right, let's pray. Father, if this is true, if it is by your hand that our hearts are changed, we need to look differently. Would you help us by giving us wisdom in the midst of maybe family situations or with another brother or sister in the church or with a coworker who doesn't know you that we would be reflecting the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thank you that when we fail at this, your grace is sufficient. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to um, tremble over whether or not we are loved by you when we sin. But the hearts that you've given us are tender toward you. And we pray that repentance comes quickly. That we, as an old Sunday school teacher of mine used to say, keep short accounts with you. Because we want to look like Jesus. And Father, if that's not going on, I pray that a red flag would go up in our hearts. That we would wonder, why am I not repenting? Why am I not tender toward the conviction of the Holy Spirit to look like Jesus more. And pray for grace. Pray for wisdom. Plead with you to change this area of the heart. Would you be effective among us, Holy Spirit, as we long to look more and more like Jesus? Because when He returns, we don't want to be ashamed. We want to look and be joyful and be um, confident, not timid, that we've neglected um, the, the work of the Spirit, the call of the Christ to be conformed to His image. You've given us a gift in this life, and we pray to use it fully, as much as possible, to the glory of God, and to the glory of God alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Eternal and temporal, right? Yes, eternal and temporal.